When the heroes of old prepared for the fight, they put on their armor. But when God prepares for battle, he makes bare his arm. So begins our sermon this week from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. Each week we read through a particular sermon and it's one that we choose from daily readings. This week, 185 to 191, with the first of those, 185, being our focus sermon, where we zero in to try and understand something of what this servant of God, gifted from heaven, uh, wants to make known to those both in his own day and to us. His text on this occasion is Isaiah 52 and verse 10. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. If you are reading along with us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up at the Media Gratii website. We're looking today at this sermon preached in 1858. And it begins with Spurgeon saying that he is glad to know that God seemed to be working in an unusual way in the United States. There was, he says, remarkable signs. There were remarkable signs that religion was progressing with majestic strides. There was a a movement of prayer in the United States and the Lord had been pleased to begin bringing people in. Now, what's so unusual about this sermon, says Spurgeon, is that people who know him will understand that he's quite suspicious of revival. That might strike you as odd when you consider Spurgeon and his reputation. But he says, whenever I see a man who's called a revivalist, I always set him down for a cipher. Uh, I, I think of him as a just an empty name. I would scorn to take such a title as that to myself, says Spurgeon. He's grateful when God uses a man to advance the cause of Jesus Christ, but he himself is concerned about the way in which the notion of revival is often misunderstood or even abused. And he talks about people who crowd in the morning, the afternoon and the evening to hear some noted revivalist. And under his preaching, some have screamed, have shrieked, have fallen down on the floor, have rolled themselves in convulsions. And afterwards, when he has set a form for penitence, when he's uh, put out a bench for the people who are uh, making the running, uh, the people who are claiming to be converted, He employs one or two decoy ducks to run out from the rest and make a confession of sin. And so hundreds come forward, impressed by that one sermon, and declare that they were there and then turned from the error of their ways. In a few words, Spurgeon is describing so much of the empty nonsense that passes for so-called revival in our own day. And he talks about those decoy ducks, the prominent ones who are uh, are meant to set the tone. They're the ones who run down to uh, make a profession of faith or who rush to get baptized so that they start the wheels turning and hopefully have an influence upon uh, those who are more easily uh, turned by uh, peer pressure. And so with that kind of movement taking place, other people go forwards without any real effect upon their souls having taken place. And people know that Spurgeon doesn't have any time for that kind of thing. All that, he says, I call farce. There may be something very good in it, but the outside looks to me to be so rotten that I should scarcely trust myself to think that the good within comes to any very great amount. 
And so, he says, if you know that that's how I typically think, you're going to be surprised to find me speaking of revival, but perhaps not quite so surprised when I endeavour to explain what I mean by an earnest and intense desire which I feel in my heart that God would be pleased to send throughout this country a revival like that which has just commenced in America and which we trust will long continue there. In other words, Spurgeon is persuaded that what he was seeing or hearing about in the United States uh, was genuine revival and it had stirred up in him this uh, holy jealousy, this righteous envy that in his own country here in Great Britain he would come to know something of the same blessing. Now he says if we're going to think rightly about this and pray rightly about this and uh, seek to uh, pursue this, then we need to know correctly what's going on. We need to understand the cause of every revival of true religion, the consequences of such revival, some cautions about revival, and then to uh, conclude an exhortation to all my brothers in the faith of Christ to labour and pray for a revival of religion in the midst of our churches. So, first, the cause of a true revival. And he says, it's not a sudden fit of godliness, not a sacred epidemic, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The worldly man doesn't understand it. The Christian understands that if a revival is true and real, it is caused by the Holy Spirit and by him alone. And Spurgeon says, to understand that, you need only look at the sermons that God blesses. On the surface of the thing, and he's now talking about Peter's discourse at Pentecost. I've read many a sermon far more likely to be more effective than Peter's, and I believe there have been many preachers who've lived whose sermons, when read, would have been far more notable and far more regarded, at least by the critic. But the Holy Spirit smiled upon that sermon. The Holy Spirit was pleased to use what seemed to be otherwise very simple, straightforward, bold and cutting, yes, but uh, really quite ordinary words about this glorious reality of Christ and him crucified. And here's Spurgeon's faith. The same word which the Holy Spirit blesses to the conversion of one, he might, if he pleased, bless to the conversion of a thousand. This is true. And this is wonderful. If the Spirit wills it, the most simple and straightforward sermon would be the means of multitudes being converted. But the flip side of that is, don't imagine when you hear of a sermon being made useful that it was the sermon itself that did the work. Don't look for the secret in the sermon. Don't imagine that because a certain preacher has been greatly blessed in the conversion of souls that the preacher is somehow unusual. God forbid that any preacher should arrogate such a thing to himself. Now, he's going to make sure you understand what he says in a moment, but notice this, even with regard to Spurgeon. This is why we keep emphasising we're not here to study Spurgeon. We're here to study Christ, and we're here because Spurgeon has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to exalt Jesus Christ. So we're not looking to the man, we're appreciating the work of the Holy Spirit through the man. 
The Spirit casts the same seed into the preacher's mind, and he doesn't know how, says Spurgeon, but when the Holy Spirit is at work, the preacher feels more earnest than he did before. When he goes to his pulpit, he goes to it as to a solemn sacrifice, and there he preaches, believing that great things will be the effect of his ministry. Now again, we're not saying that this doesn't happen under more normal circumstances, but there's a heightened intensity when the Holy Spirit is working in this unusual way. It's the ordinary means, but employed in an extraordinary degree of spiritual power. When the time of prayer comes round, Christians are found meeting together in large numbers. They can't tell what it is that influences them, but they feel that they must go up to the house of the Lord to pray. And while that's the actual cause, there are instrumental causes. And this comes back to the other side of what we were just saying. Because the main instrumental cause of a great revival, that is the tool which the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish his sovereign purpose, must be the bold, faithful, fearless preaching of the truth as it is in Jesus. The church is not served by one reformation only. She needs continually to be wound up and set going afresh for her works run down and she does not act as she used to do. So we need this kind of preaching again and again and continually. The tendency of the church is to cover up its own naked simplicity, but the truth is beautiful when it stands in its own unadorned God-given glory. He says you, you need to know the power of the truth in your heart. And when it's preached by men who know that truth with that power, whose lips are touched as with a live coal from off the altar, this shall be the instrument, notice, in the hand of the Spirit for bringing about a great and thorough revival of religion in the land. So, the Spirit is the great agent. Preaching is the primary instrument. And alongside of that, you need to add, as another means that the Holy Spirit is pleased to use, the earnest prayers of the church. All in vain, the most indefatigable ministry, unless the church waters the seed sown with her abundant tears. Here's the principle. Every revival has been commenced and attended by a large amount of prayer. And so it's prayers with preaching. Preaching with praying that the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish revival of religion. And what then are its consequences? What follows on from this kind of preaching and praying under the influence of the Holy Spirit? The first effect, says Spurgeon, is that the minister himself begins to be warmed. He's already begun to hint at this. The minister all of a sudden finds that the usual forms and conventionalities of the pulpit are not exactly suitable to the times. And so he finds himself perhaps on a Sunday morning, though a doctor of divinity, actually telling an anecdote, lowering the dignity of the pulpit by actually using a simile or metaphor, sometimes perhaps accidentally making his people smile. And what is also a great sin in these solid theologians, now and then dropping a tear. And he doesn't really know what's going on, but the people are actually listening. You hear the sarcasm dripping through here. Spurgeon saying that when a man in the pulpit is being revived, he actually begins, begins speaking in a way that brings truth to men's ears 
and hearts. And people begin to say, this is not the man that we remember. This is a different kind of preaching. It could almost be a different preacher. It's not, but it's a man whose heart is taken up with the truth. And now the prayer meeting is revitalized and the old stager who used to pray for 20 minutes finds it now convenient to confine himself to five. And that good old man who always used to repeat the same form of prayer when he stood up and talked about the horse that rushed into the battle and the oil from vessel to vessel is now just praying, O Lord, save sinners for Jesus Christ's sake. And it's evident in the prayer meeting that people are moved from every heart to plead with God for a blessing. And so when the Holy Spirit works in this way, preaching begins to have an impact and it is both perhaps the consequence of prayer and also the prompt to it. And as a result, as the preaching and the praying begins to grip, the members of the church grow more solemn, more serious. They take true religion more seriously in their homes, in their families, in the uh, among the children God begins to work. And then comes the great result that not only now are the people of God influenced, but as the Holy Spirit begins to work among them, truth rolls out from them. A revived people have an impact on those who are around them. And the converts that come in are earnest ones. Outsiders call them fanatics, nothing but enthusiasts, but it's heavenly enthusiasm. And the the men of God who are preaching are calling out sinners in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the sinners are coming to Jesus Christ and the church is welcoming them in and showing them what it means to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great concern of the preacher and of the church and of those who are being added to it is the glory of God because it's not by men but by his power that these things are brought about. And then the effect keeps going. The revival of the church touches the rest of society. It has an impact. This salt and light goes out and it has an effect even if it is not converting everybody. It's 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 the reality of eternal things that are brought to bear upon men's souls. And so whoever they are and wherever they go, there's this sense of heavenly reality. Oh, says Spurgeon, this is what we want to see. He he says that he's building this new sanctuary, as he calls it, the, the metropolitan tabernacle as it would become. And he says, instead of having 1,200 members, I'd be pastoring 2,000 if the Lord was pleased to give this blessing. And you may know that actually, uh, before long, he was pastoring a congregation of some 5,000. Why? Because he says, our souls are greedy, covetous for God. Oh, that we might be all converted. So as long as Christ is preached, he says, whoever preaches Christ truly, I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. I want every large building, if God wills, to be crowded in London and every man who preaches the word followed by tens of thousands if they're hearing the truth. This is Spurgeon's conception and it's a a substantially biblical one. It's borne out by the history of God's dealings in the world and in the church, but a caution. If your heart's taken up with this and you're, you're thinking, yes, this is what I want. This is what I want from my preacher. This is what I want in the church. This is what I want in my own soul. 
He says, remember that revival sometimes comes with what is called wildfire. He refers to a man called Christmas Evans, sometimes described as the Bunyan of Wales. And he says how with that imaginative preaching, that vivid preaching, people would sometimes be dancing so excited were they. And he says the dancing was not the work of the Spirit. Stirred in their hearts, yes, that's the Spirit work, but the Holy Spirit does not care to make people dance under sermons. And then he talks about the tendency among some to stir up these more extravagant physical and emotional demonstrations. And he says that not is not necessarily the work of the Spirit. It's ridiculous nonsense and nothing more. So when you see these strange contortions of the body, distinguish between things that differ. The Holy Spirit's work is with the mind, not with the body in that way. And so, so often today, when revival is measured by these extravagant physical demonstrations, Spurgeon says, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. It may be some unhappy overspill, but it is not the measure of true revival. In fact, he says, such things are the result of satanic malice. They're the the devil seeking to make sometimes even the very work of God appear ludicrous in the eyes of men. Old Apollyon busy trying to mar the work. God himself wishes things to be done decently and in order. And it's neither decent nor orderly for people to dance nor howl nor scream while the sermon is being preached, the gospel is being uh, declared. And so that's not the Holy Spirit's work. It's mere human excitement. So first caution, don't assume that these uh, more extravagant or excitable demonstrations have anything really to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, distinguish between man and man in the work of revival. In other words, you need to actually make sure that the people who are professing to be converted genuinely are converted, that they're not just imitating one another, that there's not some kind of uh, great uh, stream of people who are all just running down the same channel because it happens to be there. You need to make sure that not... Uh, It's not mere human excitement. And so the conversion is not genuine. Be sure that the people are saved. And Spurgeon at this and and, and subsequent to this was very careful to make sure that uh, people who professed faith could not only uh, point to their experience of salvation but had some understanding of what had gone on in their souls. Furthermore, he says... You cannot afford to relax the bonds of discipline. Some churches, he says, when they increase very largely, are apt to take people into their number by wholesale without due and proper examination. Be just as strict when God is at work in this unusual or distinctive way as in times of more gradual increase. You still need to exercise a holy caution lest the church, rather than be... uh, enhanced both in number and in purity, instead lowers its standard of piety by admitting people who are not genuinely saved. So here you can see some of the particular concerns that Spurgeon has. This is why he says he's suspicious of revival that is merely man-made. But 
even with those cautions in mind. His fourth and final point in this sermon, as he gathers up his strength, is with all his might to labour to stir you up to seek of God a great revival of religion throughout the length and breadth of this land. Now, he's not denying the favour that God has already shown. Drops precede the April showers, he says. The mercies which God has already bestowed upon us are just the forerunners and the preludes of something greater and better yet to come. And so if God's given you something, seek him for more and more. And so, says Spurgeon, I'll address myself first to those who stand in the way of any revival of religion, those who would impede or hinder the Lord's work, and he's pleading with them not to do so. God will never bless an unholy people, and in proportion to our unholiness, God will withhold the blessing from us. Tell me of a church that is inconsistent, and tell me of a church then that is unblessed. God will first sweep the house before he comes to dwell in it. And so if he says, if if you're just pretending Christianity, you are standing in the way of God's blessing and you need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and you need to ask him to make you either a true Christian or a genuinely holy one. Others, though, are so cold-hearted that they stand in the way of all progress. They're a skid, they're a break upon the wheels of the church. It cannot move because of such men and women. And if we would be earnest, you put your cold hand on everything that is bold and daring. These are the people who always know what's wrong with every idea, who are suspicious of every new effort, perhaps who are dismissive of people who are coming under the sound of the gospel, who perhaps disdain vigour and enthusiasm in the church of Jesus Christ, that they're always undermining the work. And then there are others who are such sticklers for order, so given to everything that has been that they don't care for revival, that they don't don't like it because it unsettles them. They don't want the church repaired, he says, lest you should touch one piece of the venerable moss that coats it. You think that because a thing is ancient, it must be venerable. You're merely loving the antique. We need not tell you that it's scriptural. That you don't care for. It's not orderly, you say. So notice, Spurgeon says, decently and in order, that's a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit. But that orderliness is not an empty traditionalism. It's not just insisting on remaining in the ruts in which things have always been done. You care more, he says, about the thing being ancient than being good. But you need to ask about the moral quality of what is taking place. I think this is painful, striking. It cuts to our hearts, does it not? Are you truly holy? Are you simply cold? Are you just concerned for keeping things going the way that they've always been? Or are you ready to recognise and bow your knee to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? But having spoken to those who hinder, a few words to those who love Jesus with all your hearts, he says, remember that men are dying around you by thousands and let their fearful fate awaken your sympathy. The, The facts of heaven and hell ought to stir our souls. And what then should we do? Pray and labor. Preach and pray. 
Christ died for sinners, shall we not weep for them? How can we, when we consider the the work that our Lord Jesus did in order that sinners should be saved, not seek to carry out his work for the praise and glory of his name? Don't we want people saved? Don't we love them uh, as our own family members? Don't we want the, the... the land itself to be stirred and the the glory of God to be seen? Don't we want, even on a shallow level, to see crime and and wickedness being brought down, to see God's day honoured, to see men turned about, to see the sun of righteousness arise, to to see the hearts of uh, icy hearts of men melted, to, to be understanding what's really at stake? Oh, will you not then now from this time forth begin to pray that God may send forth his word and save them, that his own name may be glorified. And the last line, as for you that fear not God, see how much ado we are making about you. See how stirred up we are on your behalf. Your souls are worth more than you think for. Oh, that ye would believe in Christ to the salvation of your souls. I think this is a magnificently balanced treatment of the topic. Not the kind of balance that leaves you not caring, but the kind of balance that makes you first of all aware of the glorious work of God when he begins to revive his people. Then the wonderful effects of that revival in the church of Jesus Christ as it spills out through preachers and hearers to those who are still outside being brought in and has this leavening effect upon the whole society. He tells us, be careful that it's real, that it's genuine, that you understand what's really going on and that you don't somehow dilute the church of Jesus Christ by an empty enthusiasm. But he says, please, 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 Don't put a break upon the work of God. Don't be cold. Don't be distant. Don't be critical. Don't be suspicious. But rather enter in praying and labouring for the glory of Christ in the church. My friends, will we do this? Am I ready to do this? Are you? Do we so value the glory of God that we will desire above all things that he will indeed make bare his arm? that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.